Thanks, Alan. So has anyone in here read a Pat Conroy book before? No. So Pat Conroy is a Southern author. It's beautiful. If you ever have a, a literature class where you get to read him, you should. Um, and he was an award-winning uh, writer, and he said this once. He said, the most powerful words in English are tell me a story. Words that are innately related to the complexity of history, the origins of language, the continuity of the species, the taproot of our humanity, our singularity, and art itself. So Connor, who made a living, uh, or Conroy, who made a living telling beautiful stories, is getting at something um, that we're just now beginning to understand the depth of. Um, last year, how much money do you think Americans spent on movies last year? Someone throw out a number. Billions. How much? Close, but not close. Close if you drop a zero. $40 billion <laughs> um, is, what, uh, is what Americans spent on movies. And that's crazy. Going to the movies, $40 billion to do that. And what that shows is that we have a culture that uh, loves entertainment, but we also have a culture that is captivated by stories. And marketers are beginning to take note of this too. Brands are be, uh, which are selling best right now are brands which are creating their marketing campaign so that you find yourself in their story. They're speaking to you at a story level. In fact, there are workshops being offered. You go look it up online. There are workshops being offered to businesses uh, coming to you and saying, here's your brand and we want to help you workshop that so that you're actually telling your customers a story so that they see what it is that you're offering them. Because it's not enough now to just say this product is what's best because we're so captivated by stories. We're saying, you have to say how this product helps that individual in their own quest. How does that product help you, the consumer, make sense of your own story and of your own journey? And the might of storytelling is more than just a trinket used by salesmen. Psychologists are beginning to realize the impact of storytelling as a means of self-discovery and realization. In fact, one book published by the Association, uh, American Psychological Association was written because this, this is a quote, it says, an increasing number of psychologists argue that people living in modern societies give meaning to their lives by constructing and internalizing self-defining stories. And so I remember last year, I think it was a Motorola commercial, uh, and it, it, it said that their product would eliminate the fear of FOMO. Do you guys remember that? You know what FOMO is? Does anyone remember? Fear of missing out, right? And so I thought of this as I was writing this sermon. And I went to go Google to find out what, it, what company it was. Was it Motorola? Does anyone remember? Anyway, so I went to go find this commercial. And what I looked at is this wasn't just like a gimmick on a commercial. This is like a legit idea that's gaining popularity in terms of how struggles we're wrestling with as a society that we are crippled by this fear of missing out of doing something, thinking that simultaneously there's something better available to us at the same time. And I think that's exactly the fear that drives the majority of our own stories. We have an end in mind of where we want to go, a goal of what it is we want to achieve, but our plot is formed as threats, mysteries, and antagonists come and begin to obstruct what we want. And when that happens, we have to fall back and look at our story and say, why is it I'm going this way? 
Where is it that I'm going? And for what purpose is it? And when we understand our story, then we're able to look at these obstacles and we're, we see how significant or how surmountable they are. How devastating is this? And can I get over it based off where I want to go inside of my life? Another pop fiction writer has said this about stories. He says, it's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head, always, all the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. And more than just sitting and daydreaming, Steve and I always talk about uh, whenever we sit in a room, I don't know if this is a guy thing, uh, but you're just like, if an active shooter came in here, where can I hide and what can I use to kill him? Like those are like, but more than just like daydreaming stories, we have this idea of where we want to go with our life. And we're captivated by, shaped by, and we're defined by these stories because God created us inside of a narrative. God created us inside of his own story. And this is one of the points that Paul is making in his letter to the church in Colossae. This church in the book of Colossians we're looking at is facing new trials, which, are, which is complicating what they thought was a clean plot line. They looked to the future and they said, that's where we're going. And now all of a sudden these obstacles are starting to arise in the middle of it. And so what Paul is doing to help them is he's reminding them of whose story it is that they are in and what their role is inside of it. And Paul, um, we looked at this passage uh, Last semester, we looked at it last week, and we're going to look at it again today because in this passage, Paul is putting the boundaries on the story. He's telling us what the story is that we find ourselves in. And listen to this passage again through the lens of a story. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so here on the first page, perhaps if you're looking at your Bible, the first page of Paul's letters, he's framing the story. Whose story are they in? They're inside God's story. It is God who made everything. It is God who sustains everything. It is God who is the goal of everything. It is God who is due all things. And he is the end of everything. This is God's story. He's the author. He made this world in the same way. No one can tell JK Rowling what to do with her Harry Potter series besides herself because it's hers. No one best knows what we are doing on this floating rock of earth floating around in space besides God because God made us. God is the author not only of creation, but of the purpose and point of it. And that means we have two choices when we face our life and our plans for the future. And the first is, is that we can choose to live as if we're our, the own author of our story. That we know what our ultimate purpose is. That we know what's best to get around the obstacles in our life. And that we even know what the best end is. The problem is, is that you have a very small chance of that story actually correlating to reality. Because God has already created a narrative. He's always created a world and we saw in there, there's a purpose of reconciliation, of restoration, of finding our end in Jesus. 
But the second part of the story is to realize that we all find ourselves in someone else's story. And that God knows what the end is. God knows what is best. God knows the ins and outs of managing the obstacles, right? When uh, we read the narratives of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, when we're looking at a problem in those books, no one is panicked that Tolkien or Lewis has no idea how they're going to get out of this. The author knows and he knows what's best. And because of that, we as the reader can trust where the story is going. But even more, when we are a character in God's story, we can trust that the author knows what's best. And it's interesting. Stories are a place that help us make sense of even ourselves. I remember uh, talking with Chase the first time I met him. We were walking around hanging up posters. I asked him what he wanted to do and why he was pursuing neuroscience. And he didn't just tell me why. He told me a story. His life made sense of what he was doing because of the story that he had. If you ask me why it is I became a pastor, I would tell you a story. I went to school wanting to be a physical therapist and then wanting to be the next anchor on SportsCenter. And here I am as a pastor and I can't just tell you this is why I'm a pastor. I tell you a story because the story makes sense of where we are. And if we want to find peace in our life, we need to know not only whose story we're in, but what our role is inside of that story. And that shapes how we view ourselves, and how we view our surroundings. This is what Paul's going to do for us today in the book of Colossians. And he's going to do it at three levels. Um, but here's what I want to look at tonight. This is the big picture of what we're going to see. And that's this, that the center of God's story is Jesus and his impact in our world. The center of God's story is Jesus and his impact in our world. So let's pray. Um, Lord, we pray uh, that you would be gracious in here tonight, uh, just looking at this room, uh, there's, there's a lot of tired people. It's late. It's that the last weird waning months of winter here in Montana. It's dark. It's cold outside. It's warm inside. Our brains are trying to get in the, the gear of things after a long break. But that's exactly what you wanted for us right now. You wanted us to come and to put our efforts to listen to you, to submit our minds to you to examine you as the greatest value and to treasure you even with our time and showing up here when there are alternatives that are, that are uh, vying for that attention. And so we pray uh, that you would be honored by the way we uh, submit ourselves to your word, by the way we respond in worship to what it is you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that you help us find our own story in the story of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. So we love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to see now, we see this, how God's story helps us on three levels. And the first thing we're going to see is that God's story makes sense of Paul's story. So Paul is the author of the book of Colossians. He's an apostle and God's story is going to make sense of Paul's story. So let's read um, part of what Alan just read for us, starting in verse 24 of Colossians one. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make fully known the word or to make known the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So let's get some context here. Okay. Um, there's this church in Colossae and they're worried um, that the, the, 
the message they heard that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, that simple, basic gospel message wasn't enough to save them. The, there was now coming out this new mystical, don't, when it comes to like religious things, don't we love the idea of like this mystical mystery, this like phenomenal thing that we can kind of get the essence of, but no one really knows. And that's like attractive for some reason. And that's this mystery that's being proclaimed uh, in this area. Uh, and, and it's, tr- they're, they're wondering, did we miss out? Is this gospel not sufficient for us? Is this is a more attractive option than this old outdated gospel that they had heard from Paul. And to top all of this off, Paul, their like superstar celebrity Christian is in prison and he's in prison for preaching this old outdated gospel. You can imagine the amount of impact this would have on their confidence, right? Here's this flashy new mystical way of salvation. And the guy who taught you the old and outdated one is currently in prison. Some salvation he must've had. Right? That's the message, this salvation, this overcoming of our problems, this winning all the time. And here he is in prison. I mean, if he had true salvation, if Paul was really the apostle that God sent to, to share this gospel with the world, well, certainly he probably wouldn't have ended up in prison because what God would send his chief apostle to prison. And if Paul really thought that was his role, wouldn't he be clamoring to get out? Wouldn't he be able to rise above this suffering and do the real work of sharing the gospel instead of sitting captive in some prison? And we get this. We're so quick as a society after a poor performance by your favorite band or a, a, a subpar performance by your favorite athlete to be like, they lost it, right? They lost it. They don't have it anymore. And here's this church and they're like, Paul's lost it. Paul doesn't even have it anymore. But Paul says, no, I rejoice in my afflictions for I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, if you have any background with the church, that's kind of a weird and almost arrogant statement. Who is Paul, this man, to say that he is filling up what Jesus did and is lacking? Did did Jesus not do something sufficiently enough? Was Jesus' sacrifice not enough to do this? But Paul, he defines this by saying that he's suffering in this way according to the stewardship that God gave Paul. So the stewardship, like when you're on an airline and the stewardess comes to you, she serves you. She has something and she gives it to you. And so God has given Paul something as a steward for the sake of this church. What does this mean? Why is Paul talking about this? Because Paul is in real suffering. He's in a real prison because he's preaching the gospel. But Paul's making sense of his suffering by seeing himself rightly through God's story instead of the circumstances which is around him. You see, before Paul was named Paul, he was a guy named Saul. Saul was a Jewish Pharisee. So you read the Old Testament. At that point, the revelation of God was given to this ethnic group. And they saw that salvation was for the Jews And the Jews only, and in order to be saved, you had to fulfill the law. You had to live a perfect life on your own. You had to present yourself as a good guy. You had to live a life worthy of God's favor. You had to please God by your own works. And because of this, Saul and his boys, they hated Jesus. Because here's this Jew coming along saying that he fulfills the law. 
saying that you don't have to, you don't have to fill the law through your works to be saved. You just have to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and you'll be saved. This idea of salvation apart from the law, salvation through faith was attacking the very identity of who Paul thought he was. And so what happened is Paul and, or Saul, wherever we find ourselves in the narrative, he saw this alternative story as his enemy and he became the chief director of a program of persecution against the Christians. He was the guy on every billboard identified with the oppression of people who worship Jesus. And his goal was to stamp out Christianity. He wanted to end it. In fact, there's a story in Acts where as Christians are being stoned, which is they put them in a pit and they throw rocks at them until they die. People would give their coats to Paul and Paul would hold them so they could throw the rocks without being encumbered by their cloaks. He was by all accounts, the most unlikely convert to ever come to faith in Jesus. But it's not Saul's story. Look with me at Acts chapter nine, verses one through five. It says this, it's up on the screen. Um, but Saul, so that's Paul, um, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, and so that was kind of the shorthand um, for Christians. They're called the way. Sounds like a really cool gang. Um, if he found anyone according to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's, asking, he's going on a mission to take captive Christians in Damascus. Now he went on his way. He approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so even though Paul thought he was the master of his own fate, he was all the while still a role player in God's story. God's plan for Paul was to give him meaning, which would have never been accessible to Paul in his own mind. And so God, Jesus specifically appear, or speaks to Paul here and he says, I'm the one you are persecuting. Go and do what I will tell you to do. And simultaneously, there's this other narrative. So Paul's on his way to Damascus. And then in Damascus, there's this disciple, this Christian named Ananias. And so Jesus appears to Ananias and he says, Hey, Ananias, someone's coming. Um, and when he gets here, I want you to pray for him and to like, I'll restore his sight. And by the way, uh, this is Saul and Ananias being a normal dude is like one second. What? Like the executioner's coming to my house to kill me. And I'm supposed to pray for him that he would have sight. And this is what happens next in verses 13 through 15. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. That's Saul's story. That's what Saul came to do. But the Lord said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. So not the Jews, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish and the Kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you understand the contrast of what just happened? Not only was Saul instantly converted when Jesus came and spoke to him, but Jesus took the most nationalistic Jew and was going to make him the chief evangelist to the infidels. He basically took the most Naziist Nazi and sent him to be an apologist to the Jews. God called Paul to carry the name of Christ to the non-Jewish world. The very thing he was trying to stop. And Paul was going to do it for the glory of God. And he was going to suffer for the sake of the church. And that, you know, it sounds depressing, right? I'm going to take you and you're going to see how much you will suffer for my sake. That gives Paul comfort in his suffering because he wasn't suffering because his story had ended. He wasn't suffering because the officials had gotten the best and this is where the road ended. He was suffering on account of Christ for the good of the Gentile church. You see where Jesus suffered primarily in a specific region of the the world in Israel, working from Jerusalem up to Galilee, And where Jesus was crucified in the presence of a Jewish audience, Paul was going to suffer across the world before a Gentile audience so that the Gentiles might hear and see the message of Jesus proclaimed by Paul. It was through Paul's suffering that the gospel was going to spread into a multi-ethnic worldwide phenomenon. You see, Paul could have pouted about his suffering, couldn't he? Why me? How many of you had Jesus blind you with light from heaven and tell you to go somewhere? That was me and here I am rotting in prison. Get over yourself. Here you are, Colossae, whining about the potential threat of persecution while I'm rotting in a Roman jail. Suck it up and deal with it. But instead, Paul chose to understand his own trial and his hope through the lens of Jesus. Jesus saved Paul and commissioned him for something new. And what Paul wanted in that moment was what Jesus wanted for Paul. That's what Paul wanted with all of his heart. Paul wanted what Jesus wanted for Paul. He's rejoicing in his suffering. Why? Because that's what Jesus wanted. And that's what Paul wanted. Jesus made sense of Paul's suffering. Now this makes sense for Paul. But like I said, we're not Paul blinded by heavenly light. Anyone? No audibly called into missions by the Lord Jesus Christ? No, none of us have had Jesus in a moment save us and then provide for us an itinerary of where we're going to go like was just given to Paul. But if we see the goal of God's story, which is what Paul is going to give us, then we have a motivation equal to what Paul himself was given. This is why that idea of FOMO, that fear of missing out comes into play. How many of you, do we have seniors in here? Any of you seniors? A couple seniors. So you're beginning to think of the world out beyond these beautiful University of Montana walls. Then on the flip side, we've got these freshmen trying to figure out your studies, your, your future, and your career. But how many of you uh, get anxious when thinking about your future in regard to what your career or what your degree is going to produce? What career you're going to get? Where you're going to live? How much money? You're going to make? How many of you are scared or often even paralyzed of making a decision because you worry you're just going to second guess yourself, thinking that you left something else better on the table? 
thinking that you're not able to make a decision of what's ultimately best. And we're crippled by that anxiety. But what if you had a guide? What if there was someone who came and they said, I am an expert in your field. And I know the exact steps you need to take to get where you're going. I'm going to tell you where to go and it is foolproof. You will not be denied. You will get to where you're going. You just have to follow the steps. And what Paul is going to show here is that God, the author of all creation, has given us that foolproof plan to move forward. And this is the second benefit of God's story, is that God's story makes sense of our story. God's story made sense of Paul's story, but that same organizing value is present for us. You see, if there's an expert who came to you and helped you plan for your future, what he's really giving you is a certain story. It's a story that says, if you go here, if you encounter this, if this is what comes, this is how you respond, and this is where you're going to get where it is that you're going. We would trust them because they know the layout of the land better. They know the obstacles better. They understand the path forward better. And we go to them because they would remove the mystery. What we don't know, they know. What we hope to find, they can give us certainty on. We want what is classified to be declassified. We want what is hidden to be revealed. And look at what Jesus did to the mystery of God in Colossians 1, 25 through 27. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul's task, the stewardship given to Paul was to suffer and make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, that's the saints and saints isn't the special super Christian category. Saints is what the Bible uses to describe anyone who is saved. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Have you ever asked yourself the question, like, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Or maybe we can get Christian with it. And from a Christian perspective, we can say, why did God create me? And not only did God create me, but why did God create me here and now instead of then and at that time? And the truth is, God knew. And God knows. But what Paul is saying here is that God also wants you to know. But he had had concealed it. He had hidden it. The mystery of God's knowledge, the knowledge of God, the creator of all things, had made it a mystery. The glory of that truth was hidden. It was concealed. It was wrapped up in the plan of God. But now Paul says... Now it's been revealed. See, as many of you know, I'm a Tennessee Titans fan. And it was announced about a year and a half ago that the Titans were going to get new jerseys. And it just came out now that those jerseys are going to be released in April. But as, we're, as I'm reading about it, what has been made clear is they've known since the day they announced that jerseys were coming, what those jerseys were going to look like. But they haven't showed us. They haven't released it. I'm sure production on the jerseys didn't take a year and a half. So why did they wait? They waited because the marketers and the team execs got together and they said, we're going to hold off until just the right time. On just the right time where it's going to bring buzz to a season where there's not much buzz, like a lull in the off season, we're going to get our fan base excited. We're going to hold it off and release it just in a moment where people are going to want to buy this the most. 
where the most jerseys are going to go out and people are going to be talking about it all the most. But God, the author of all history, kept his plan concealed not to sell jerseys or to cause excitement, but so that at the right time, the glory of God would be greatest and the greatest amount of salvation would be experienced on our planet. He's talking about this time when Jesus came and how Jesus shows us the plan of God. And look at what the Bible says um, about this time. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6. Paul says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. At the proper time, Jesus came to die as a ransom. Not as an abstract time, not on time dictated by the story of history, but at the proper time, exactly when God wanted Jesus to come. Jesus died for our sins. Romans 5 verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, God revealed, he pulled back the curtain of his plan to give us the mind of God, the will of God, the desire of God, the goal of God, the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Like we all want to know what our teachers know. That's why we're in school. We want to know, even as you're sitting here wrestling with tuition rates, we want to know what the president knows. We want to know what the board of regent knows. And here, God, the creator of all things, holy, perfect, just, lovely, the superlative of all superlatives, is making known to us what he knows to be the most ultimate plan. The author of all authors comes down and says, this is the purpose of life. This is the goal of creation. This is the most satisfying moment of all human history, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he's not just going to bring salvation to the Jews. He's bringing it to the Gentiles and it's going to the nations and it will produce saints across borders and lands. The goal of God is not to produce spiritually minded people. The goal of God is not to foster morality or people who are kind to one another. The goal of God, the climax of God's plan for all creation is to bring men to him through Jesus Christ. How does this make sense of you? How does this help with your story? Look back at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory. I love that phrase. What value in that phrase? Like, it just sounds like if there was a word that sounded rich, it would be that phrase, the riches of the glory, the lavishness of what the treasure is there. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've got a big life to live and no man can number his days and no doctor can extend what God has limited. But here we see the place where you find yourself in God's story is Christ in you. The whole point, the whole plot line, the whole meaning of your life 
is Christ in you. Salvation by faith through Christ. Why? Because it's the hope of glory. See, all of our stories culminate in glory. From our daydreams to our biggest plans, it's the central theme of our stories. It's why we study what we study, move where we move, take the careers that we want and date who we want to date. We want the glory which our story seems to promise us. The peace, the treasure, the reward. But the only glory in the story of life is the glory which comes when Christ saves our hearts through faith. That's because this world was designed for that. It's not the best glory. It's not a better glory. It is the only glory God, the author of all creation, has woven into our existence. It is designed and exclusive. It is what you were made for. It's to be saved by Jesus Christ. And in the same way Paul's suffering is viewed through the lens of salvation, so too is every area of your life filtered through this lens. What does God want from you? Where is your value? What is your number one priority? Where do you find satisfaction and meaning? When Christ dwells in you richly through faith. This doesn't mean that we don't have other goals, that our only goal is to, uh, our only exclusive goal is that we would be saved. But it's that we pursue worldly goals, but we have as the number one priority, this eternal goal of Christ being in us. We refuse to believe that we will be able to make sense of our life or find peace in our life by any metric or measuring rod outside of the gospel of Jesus. But that temptation to buy into other stories is everywhere. And we're just realizing that temptation. And if we take that, we look back at the garden of Eden when Satan came to Adam and Eve, he crafted a story and they believed that over what God said. So what does it look like to treasure the story of God over these other stories? Let me give you an example. At Sovereign Hope, we have nine elders. Elders is a word that's synonymous with pastors. Five of those um, elders are on staff, meaning we work for the church. We get our paychecks from the church. And then four of those elders are non-staff elders. So that means that they're pastors. They're spiritually responsible for you in the same way I'm spiritually responsible for you. They have the same qualifications that I have being able to teach and correct sound doctrine to care for people, but they work 40 hours a week, not at the church. They have these other jobs that they're doing. And two of those elders were offered more uh, higher paying, more lucrative positions in their careers in places outside of Missoula. And what ultimately made their decision was where they would best serve Christ. And they chose a greater glory. So if you've been to Sovereign Hope, you have men spiritually caring for you who are refusing to buy the narrative that our greatest hope is in the things of this world. And they have put their life into Christ in you the hope of glory. And that's what Jesus is calling us towards, of leaving nothing on the table by taking everything Jesus has given to us in Christ. And this is our last point tonight, is that the story of God makes sense of everyone else's story. Look with me at Colossians uh, 1, 28 through 29. 
Him we proclaim, that's Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. This is a confusing sentence, but I want us to pay attention to it. If the center of our story is Jesus saving us as the center of God's story, then that saving gospel should be made available to everyone else. If the center of our story is Jesus saving us, which is the center of God's story, then that gospel will save anyone else. Because what's special about you? Why is this gospel good for you, but not good for other people? Did you hear Paul's cadence in this text? Proclaim, Jesus, we proclaim. What's the message of Paul? Jesus. Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone in order that everyone may be presented mature in Christ. That's the goal of GCF. If there is a mission statement for GCF right now, we have a mission statement. It's to proclaim the glory of God and train students for life of public faith. This is a better one. Okay. If we could just plagiarize Paul and say, him, we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. That's a better mission statement. The whole scope of this ministry is that we will proclaim Jesus Christ, not morality, not spirituality, not academic theological values, but Christ Jesus. We will warn people of the dangers of not following Christ. We will point to the empty hopes of following things which are not Christ. We will teach the application of Christ in all of our life. And we will do so because we want you to be mature in Christ. We want you to have Christ dwell richly inside of you. And what's interesting is if you're looking for a pattern for evangelism, here it is. Proclaim Christ, warn people, teach them and expect God to do a great work. If you're looking for a pattern for discipleship, here it is. Proclaim Christ to one another, declare the dangers of sin to one another, teach the glory of the gospel to one another and together mature in Christ You see, we want to know the story of God because we want to know Jesus clearly. If Jesus is just a word in our songs or a mantra in our preaching, then we don't know the center of God's story and therefore we don't know who we are. But if we want to understand and have an organizing principle in our life, we must know not just the word Jesus or the man Jesus or even the religious figure Jesus. We must know what Jesus did that was so important that it was the centerpiece of all human history. But if Jesus is the centerpiece of God's story, then we will never move from that hope because nothing else will make sense to us. Nothing else will satisfy us. I dare you to find me a narrative in culture that has endured past 100 years. I dare you to find me a narrative in culture that stands up to the story that God has told about our condition, Jesus' solution, and our future hope in him. And because it's made sense of our life, we will be dedicated to helping others make sense of theirs because we've seen the glory of God. Look at what Paul says in 1 verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. There's a danger here. When you find yourself in God's story, you find yourself doing God's task with God's power. 
Paul is working, Paul is struggling, Paul is toiling, but it's Jesus who's producing this energy in him. So if this is your story, this is your task. This is what we move forward in. This is what sustains us. This is what internally strengthens us and externally what compels us. You see, oftentimes we view the gospel as a rocket booster, right? We're on the ground, it shoots us up into outer space, but as soon as we're at altitude, we jettison it. We let momentum take us the rest of the way. But the gospel is not a rocket booster. It's a jet engine. It's what takes us off the ground, sustains us in flight, and brings us safely home. And if it's the joyful center of God's plan, we want it to be the joyful center of our life. And we want to never move past it, but to proceed through it for all eternity until we see it face to face. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you help us um, see ourselves through your gospel. But even as we have a Bible study tomorrow on worldview, that's all it is. It's just seeing what God has done for us as the most uh, supreme vision we have in our life and seeing everything through that. Lord, you have shown us the mystery of your will. I pray that it excites us. You have shown us the beauty of your grace. I pray that it stuns us. You have shown us the glory of Christ. I pray that it compels us. You have shown us the salvation of Jesus and I pray that it redeems us. So Lord, I pray that for those in this group who are not Christians, that this proclamation of the gospel will do to them what it did to Paul, that it will save them and show them the greater prob- or the greater prize that is Christ. And for those who are saved in here, Lord, I pray that we proclaim Christ. I pray that we warn others of the dangers of being found without them. I pray that we use all the wisdom that you've given us not to puff up our own chests or to build a cocoon of safety, but to proclaim the beauty of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you make us mature together in Christ for your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of those who are lost. I pray this in your name. Amen.